Welcome to the bookshelf and three nights of Pivot Spokane, Spokane's storytelling consortium. In the course of the next three nights, we hear from Katie Blackburn, Adam Schluter, Josh Armstrong, Jennifer Mesa, Kianta Duncan, and Darian Mack. Darian also serves as the DJ and will be involved in the intros to the storytellers, and the host this time is Jessica Watson. Our first storyteller tonight, she's a stay-at-home mom and a writer, and she's going to be telling us a story about how important it is to have friends who can be honest with you. And her name is Katie Blackburn. The night I went on my very first blind date was back in 2010, and it was set up by my best friend, Emily. And I remember walking into Emily's living room feeling dressed and fancy and ready to go meet this guy that she had been telling me about for months. And I was wearing a black long sleeve shirt, flared jeans with probably way too much flair, and my white Nike running shoes. Surely the exact same shoes that I had worked out in earlier that day. And Emily, sweet soul sister, matchmaker of a friend that she is, took one look at me and the ensemble I had planned for the evening, and she did this. No. No. Then she marched me back to her room, found something that would help me dress up the black shirt a little bit, demanded I take off the running shoes, and she let the jeans slide. Now, I'll skip to the end and tell you that I ended up marrying this guy that she set me up with, so I'm pretty thankful she made me take off my running shoes that night. (laughs) I'm so thankful that she told me no. Seven years later, it's 2017, and Alex and I are the parents to three precious kiddos, Harper, Cannon, and Jordy. Harper is a four and a half year old spitfire. She's smart and funny and super social. She's like the kind of first child that one, makes you think that parenting's like really easy and that you're really good at it. Um, (laughs) And our youngest, Jordy, has just turned one and he's so chubby and happy all the time and has the biggest blue eyes that you've ever seen. And Cannon, our middle child, is almost three and he still doesn't speak. He might look at you when you're in the room, but he's probably not gonna pay much attention. He wears only his adorable red cars slippers, the ones that look just like Lightning McQueen. He's run away from us a few times, mostly in parks or public places. But once, he ran away, and we couldn't find him for nearly 10 minutes. We were just outside on our porch eating dinner, and he was right inside the door, right on the other side of the wall, watching Dora the Explorer. Or at least, that's where we thought he was. But we found out he wasn't inside watching Dora the Explorer. He wasn't anywhere in the house when my husband went inside for more food. And the panic that 
arrested my heart and my mind in that moment, it still makes my chest tighten when I think about it. We found him just a few blocks away. My husband left the house without even putting shoes on, running down the street in the direction that we were pretty sure he would have gone. And he was there a few blocks away in the arms of a really kind young woman who just assumed that this sweet little boy who couldn't tell her his name or anything about him probably had parents coming to look for him pretty soon. So Cannon has autism, or he is autistic. Chicken or the egg. I will tell you, I've been in this special needs world for nearly five years as a parent, and I still don't know. What I do know is that people might have cancer, but they are not cancer. But who knows, maybe someday Cannon will be able to tell us what he prefers. But in 2017, he's almost three years old, and he definitely has some superpowers, like all kids on the spectrum have. And we're definitely not at all worried about his gross motor skills, because let me tell you, he could and did and often still does climb everything. And y'all, I really do mean everything. Store shelves, kitchen counters, occasionally vehicles, sometimes the neighbor's fence. It's a good thing they like us. Cannon's autism manifested itself pretty early on in a near impossible ability to be in public totally appropriately, which was kind of cute and funny when he was little, but got less cute and funny the older and stronger that he got. But in 2017, in the initial wake of his diagnosis, as Alex and I were figuring out how to be special needs parents to this precious, unique little boy who we love so much, but was also gonna need so much, it was a really hard year. Sometime in the spring, one of Cannon's speech therapists let me know about an early childhood development conference over in Tacoma and that this conference was gonna have a two-day session on a certain therapy modality that could be beneficial to Cannon in the future. She also said that they were giving away a select number of scholarships to parents who wanted to come, and that would mean two nights in a hotel for free and free admission to the conference, and so not the most romantic date idea we ever had, but we thought, why not? It's two nights in a hotel that we don't have to pay for. <laughs> so in May, my husband and I found ourselves in a big conference hall at a table surrounded by mostly educators, teachers, professionals, therapists, listening to at this expert in the field. The presenter, her name was Rosemary, she had been working with kids with autism for more than 20 years. And that meant that she had video after video after video of other teachers and therapists and even parents working on this special mode of therapy with their children. And as much as all of these videos were meant to be helpful and informational and teach us ways that we could connect with our sweet boy in meaningful ways and will his beautiful green eyes to meet ours. I will tell you that as a parent, in that moment, those videos did not feel all that helpful. Because all I could really see were videos of our future. 
And I didn't want this little three-year-old of ours to be a 10 or 15 or 25-year-old who still couldn't tell me about his day or if his stomach hurt or if somebody was mean to him. Honestly, I wanted to go to this conference and learn what we were supposed to learn and come home and for it to be the breakthrough that we were looking for. I didn't want to go and be reminded that this was going to be a journey we were going to have to grow into for the rest of our lives. So on the second day, my phone lit up with a text message, and it was from my friend Emily, the, the same friend who had set me up with the guy sitting next to me. And she was just checking in in her joyful, happy manner. Katie, how's it going? Are you having fun? How's the hotel room? All those fun things that a friend would say to you when you're on a, on a two-day getaway. And I responded to her the only way I could, and that was honestly. And I said, Emily, this is so hard. It's so overwhelming. It just feels like so much, and I don't know if I can do it. I know now that what I was, what I was really saying to my friend is that I was afraid. I was afraid that Cannon would run away from us again. I was afraid that we would never be invited anywhere, that our family would never be invited anywhere because we were just a bit too much. I was afraid that people would think that I'm a bad mom. And I was certainly afraid that people would think that my son's a bad kid. And when you're living in fear, when that's all you can feel, fear is going to tell you no. It's going to tell you no, you can't do this. But without missing a beat, Emily texts me back, and in all capital letters, she says, yes, you can. And then she followed it up with a line I will never forget. She said, you are doing an incredible job with a very tough assignment. And I'm going to tell you, yes, you can for the rest of your life. A couple weeks later, my phone lights up again, and it's Emily. And she just has a little message that says, a little something on your front porch for you. So I open the door, and there on the ground is a, a brown box with a little Nike swoosh on it. <laughs> and I open it up to find a new pair of running shoes. And right on the inside of the box, she had written, just a reminder that we are committed to running the heart miles of life with you. So here's the thing, y'all. I think when somebody knows you and cares about you and loves you enough to tell you no, you end up really believing them when they tell you yes. Thank you. Leading off the pivot stories from this June 17th performance, that was Katie Blackburn. Now let's go right back to the stage at the Washington Cracker Building for the next storyteller. Um, our next storyteller is going to be telling us a story about how a stranger had one shot to save his life. So please welcome to the stage Adam Schluter. <laughs> Thank you. 
What's up, guys? That's a lot of people. You guys are cool. Uh, Katie, that was just amazing. My girlfriend's over here just crying. Uh, that was just beautiful. So another round of applause. Just amazing. Love to see vulnerability, and uh, that's something a generation needs right now. So, um, so the last few years, I've uh, done a project called Hello from a Stranger, where I go all over the world. I leave my phone at home, and uh, I, I say hello to strangers. I ask for their photograph, and then I put my camera away and just try to have a genuine conversation with people. And I do this to try to inspire people to put their phones away more often and just connect with one another, interact with the world around you more often. And you know, suicide rates are the highest they've ever been. We have so much isolation in our culture. And so I'm always trying to just bridge that gap. And I've always been very old fashioned with technology. And so I was at, uh, it's been in 20 countries now so far. And I think I was at 16 or 17. And I was trying to think of the next country to go to and Cuba just hit my mind immediately. Uh, has anyone been to Cuba in here? No one's been to Cuba. Go to Cuba. It's just an unbelievable. Who? Yes, there's one. Okay. Um, Cuba is, as you probably heard, trapped in, in not a bad way though, but stuck in the 50s or 60s, and it's just life without technology. It's just life with just you know primitive cars and primitive technology, and just this minimal awareness of even what's going on in the rest of the world in a very innocent, beautiful way. So if you ever want to remember what life was like before phones and everything, go to Cuba. It's just an amazing place. Um, and when I was going to Cuba, I didn't know that you could, if you could just fly there. I knew you could go to Mexico and fly there. I didn't know how it worked. And uh, you have to give a reason for why you're going to Cuba. And so um, I reached out to some sponsors, tried to find a company that could sponsor me that had a location in Cuba. And then they could give me their blessing and I could get a ticket there. And I found a company, actually one based out of Coeur d'Alene, Row Adventures, that offered to uh, set me up and uh, allow me to give me their blessing to go there. So when I do these trips, I have zero plans. I usually have an Airbnb for maybe the first two or three nights, and then I always force myself to need to interact with the community, interact with locals, and have to just hear where to go next. I, I don't have any kind of agenda or itinerary. And so um, I flew to Havana, and I had an Airbnb for the first two nights in Havana, and my plan was the only thing that Row Adventures asked me to do was to somehow make it to the second largest city in Cuba, which is called Cienfuegos. In Cienfuegos, they have an adventure office there, and they had a guy there named Anders they wanted me to meet. So I was like, oh yeah, okay, great. Well, you know, I won't think anything about it. I flew to Cuba for a month, and normally when I do this in Europe or other countries, there's tr public transportation, there's obviously, you know, trains or planes or other ways to get around. Well, Cuba is another planet in the best way possible, but there is absolutely no public transportation. There's really very minimal infrastructure outside of uh, Havana. There is, there is just, you, you are just in such a different moment in history. And so I didn't really know that, but I was really communicating with locals on how to do that. And so I just kind of bounced from uh, city to city as I was moving my way across uh, Cuba. And so I found a way to take some buses. But to give an example of how old school or primitive the bus system is, um, I was in a town called uh, Beredero, and I then took a bus to Santa Clara, which is in the center, center of Cuba, and I forgot a camera lens in uh, Beredero. And so I immediately got off the bus, I knew it right away, and I went to the, the ticket office and I said, hey, I gotta uh, take a bus back to Beredero to get this lens. And they said, well, there's no buses leaving for another three days. And so I was like, well, what do I do? And they were like, well, you just gotta wait three days, what do you mean? And so, 
was like, okay, so how do I know I'm going to be able to get a tick when I come, come back? And the guy's sitting on this desk with a million pieces of paper on it, and he literally tears a corner off of a piece of paper, and he writes my name down on it, and then he just, he puts it with a thousand other pieces of paper on his desk. And so... Three days later, I go back, so excited. It's an expensive lens or what? who cares, but I was just trying to get back to get it. And uh, I go to the same guy. Hey, I got to go to Beradero. And he's like, there's no buses. They're all full. And I was like, hey, man, you wrote my name on that piece of crap little paper. And he's like, oh, hold on. And he just starts sifting through all the papers. And he finds my corner. And I swear to God, he's like, oh, yeah, you're good. OK, we can get you on the bus. So that's Cuba. Cuba's amazing. And he couldn't spell my name on the ticket, so he had me write it on the computer. He moved out of the way, and I wrote my own ticket. So Cuba's awesome. So long story short, I make it to Cienfuegos. And when I get to Cienfuegos, uh, I wanted to reach out to Anders right away. Um, very hard to find internet, and I finally did. Um, and in Cuba, you look for people that are sitting around a tree, true story, in a park. And if there's people sitting around a tree, that means there's internet around that tree. And so you go sit around that tree and you have like one bar to be able to find email, then I got in touch with the Anders. And so uh, the other beautiful thing with Cuba is you have two options really. You either stay in hotels, um, which largely run by the government, all the money goes to the government. And as you know, or might not know, but Cuba is communist and nationalist. And so the people are just largely marginalized. They have no ways of income. They're extremely poor, um, but they're just such wonderful people. And so the only good thing the government's really done was they allowed the people to do what's called casa particulares. Casa particulares means that any house that would like to can put a blue anchor on the outside of their house. And that means that you can go up to that house with no plans at all, knock on the door, and just ask if you can stay with them. And sometimes they'll say, yeah, and they'll pack up their stuff, and they'll just leave the house with their family, and they'll say, enjoy the house. Sometimes they'll say, we got this little apartment here and next to our house, and just come on in. And sometimes they'll say, yeah, come on in, and they'll be there, and it's just amazing. You get to just live with this family, and uh, for $5, it's $25 anywhere in the country to do this. Um, it's like a standardized rate, and then for $5, they'll cook you any meal. So I would obviously always have them cook me all their meals so I could try their food. And so this morning in Cienfuegos, um, I got in touch with Anders, and Anders was like, hey, we're going to pick you up at 11, and I had this whole adventure day planned for us, so like, just be ready. I was like, great. So I woke up, and I asked the family. I was staying, the family was still with me in the house, and so I said, would you guys mind uh, if I had breakfast with you all? And they said, yeah, of course. And so beautiful breakfast, fresh fruit, coffee, um, you know, bread, butter, uh, simple stuff like that. Eat this great breakfast, and Anders shows up. And uh, it's Anders and his dad, and we get in the car, and we just got in this grand adventure. And the only plan that we had was to make it to a coastal town called Trinidad. And Trinidad is this very old, 1500s colonial rum sugar mill town, just incredible. Um, right on the coast, beautiful place, very difficult to get to and very difficult to get out of. And so they were going to bring me there, we are going to spend that day together, and they were going to leave me there at a Casa Particulares. And so uh, we go out and we just have this whole day. And first thing Anders wanted to do, great Cuban, he wanted to get mojitos. And so we go out on this mountainside, we get some mojitos, we're just having all our fun. 
And I drink the mojito, and I just feel a little bit strange, but don't think anything of it. You know, I've been probably two weeks at this time in Cuba and traveling pretty hard, so not thinking much of it. But I start to kind of feel like I'm going to throw up. And I tell it to Anders. He's first like, just drink another mojito. And then I was like, well, you know, I really think I'm going to throw up here. And he's like, how about just, dear God, drink some club soda or something. And so drink some club soda. But there's definitely like something in me. And it just feels weird, but I was OK. I was able to hold it down. And so Anders, I was telling him, hey, I'm not feeling as great. And he's like, no worries. And so he sets up this other adventure stuff for us to do. And I really started feeling sick, just worse and worse and worse. And it's coming on worse and worse and worse. And so we even go out swimming. We, they have a bunch of beers. We try to jump off these cliffs and go out snorkeling. And I just can't shake how sick I'm feeling. But I hadn't thrown it up at this point. And so Anders finally says, hey, let's go to this, this beautiful dinner. We set this up in this little local town, absolute just middle of nowhere. And so we show up at this restaurant, and uh, they bring out this incredible meal. And the second I see the food, I just run out of the restaurant, and I start throwing up in the street. And so I'm just throwing up, throwing up, throwing up, throwing up, throwing up. Don't have that much in my system. And um, as I'm throwing up, I finally throw up so much that I pass out. And I don't even remember, obviously, passing out or anything. But the next thing I remember is this grandma um, had woken me up, and she had brought me a cup of chamomile tea. And when she woke me up, I realized that I'm in the middle of the street, in the middle of nowhere, uh, you know, totally blacked out, and I really have no idea what's going on. And so I go back in the restaurant, and I tell Anders, great host, I was sleeping in the street. So uh, I tell him, hey, dude, like, I'm in pretty bad shape. And he's like, OK, OK, we can go, we can go. And so I'm still throwing up, and I'm still throwing up. And we get in the car, and at this point, uh, I'm throwing up blood. And at this point, it's just worse and worse and worse. And this is just as bad of a situation as you could be in, because remember, there's really no way out of Cuba other than very well planned out, even plane rides and nothing outside of Havana. And so I'm very far. I'm the complete opposite side of the country. And so um, if you remember, the original plan was to take me to Trinidad and get me this Casa Particulares. And when we got to Trinidad, um, Anders wanted to get this drink called Aguadente, which is just a very old rum drink. And they were going to leave me there. And I was just feeling strange. This is actually a little bit before I started throwing up. And they were going to leave me there. And I said, hey, you know, I'm going to come back with you. And they're like, no, come on. I'm like, hey, I just don't want to be left here, you know, and still be in bad shape. So I just kept declining and kept declining. And now I'm throwing up blood. And now we're trying to make it back to Cienfuegos. And as we're making it back to Cienfuegos, uh, we are stopping at least every 15 minutes, maybe every 10 minutes. And it's a very long car ride back. And so at this point, it's just blood, blood, blood. And it's just a very bad situation. So I, we ended up making it back to uh, Cienfuegos. And I said, hey, you know, we'll just got to go to the hospital. And they're like, we don't trust the hospitals in Cuba. There's no way we're taking you to a hospital. So it's like, OK, well, what's the plan? He's like, oh, don't worry, dude. You're fine. No worries at all. And I was waiting on him to offer me another mojito, but uh, he didn't. And he took me to a clinic. And he's like, don't worry, dude. They have anti-vomit drugs here. Like, you just take one of those. You'll be fine. So he gives me, we go to the clinic. They give me an anti-vomit drug. And I take the anti-vomit drug. And I throw it up immediately. And he looks at me, and he's like, that's pretty bad. So they give me a second one, and I throw up the second one. And we realize then how bad it is. And again, I'm throwing up blood, throwing up everything they're giving me. And so it's nighttime now. It's probably 4 or 5 o'clock at night. And we can't go to the hospitals. We can't get out of Cienfuegos where we're at. I'm just, I've been throwing up now for probably 12 hours, extremely dehydrated, no end in sight, no way out. 
And so Anders and his dad finally looked at me and they said, hey, we know this house, we know this place where these two doctors live, and we're just gonna take you there as a last hope, and possibly, you know, they're gonna be there. And so we go to the doctor's house, we knock on the door, and when the doctor opens the door, I'm throwing up blood all over the street. And he opens the door and he sees the blood and he says, bring them inside immediately. And they bring me inside this home and they wrap me up with a bunch of blankets because I'm just having tremors, I'm shivering so much. And he puts me in a bed and he says, um, leave him in this bed, wrap him up with as many blankets as possible because we couldn't get me to stop tremoring. And he's like, I will continue to watch him. And so I had found a way, I was very delirious, but I had found a way that I would stop throwing up if I didn't move anything on my body, not even my fingers, not anything. So I lay, there's a clock at the end of the bed, and all I would do is stare at this clock. And every hour or so, Jose would just yell in the window, Adam, Adam, how you doing, Adam? And I just would try to respond, and when I would respond, I would get sick. And so um, we did this till about 10 o'clock at night. And at 10 o'clock, he said, Adam, okay, we gotta get you sitting up. You gotta just sit up and so we can talk. When I sit up, I start throwing up blood again, and Jose looks at me with a very, very worried face, and he just says, this is very bad, and I said, I know this is very bad, and he runs out the door, and he comes back with Anders, and Anders is my translator, um, obviously also the adventure guide, and then they run out, and they come back with a guy in cut-off Harley Davidson, sleeveless T-shirt, big, boisterous guy, and he says, Adam, this is my son, and my son escaped to Paraguay about 12 years ago, and this is the first time coming back to visit us. And he comes back here, he came back here, and it's kind of a Cuban thing that if you're able to escape and are able to make it back to Cuba, that you bring drugs that Cubans can't get for themselves from the government or in hospitals. And so his son introduced himself and he said, listen, he got all the signs, he went through everything that was going on, and he said, I have this shot, I have this, uh, antibiotic that is extremely strong. He said, I brought it for cancer patients, for maybe someone that couldn't, that would not have this in our country. And he said, I, bring, I only brought one shot and I brought it to give away to anybody that, it, that needed it. And I've been here for 12 days and I have yet to find anybody that needed this shot. So he's like, somehow I still have this shot. And so he said, I'm gonna give you this and I'm gonna mix it with anti-vomit yeah, anti um, so that you'll stop vomiting and antibiotic and uh, we're just gonna see how this goes. And I'm in a dirty Cuban bedroom in just an insane town where not another person on the planet knows me, but I was not about to complain. If I was already gonna die, so if this is gonna take me out, it's still a great story. And so uh, he flips me over, gives me a, sh a big steel five-inch shot in my butt, of course, and pulls it out and he looks at me and he says, you do not drink anything for the next two hours, not even a drop of anything, you just lay there. And those are some of the worst words I've ever heard in my life because at this point I'd been thrown out for 16 hours. I was just extremely dehydrated. All I wanted was just a drop of water. And so from 10 o'clock to midnight, I, and I just passed out and I came in and out and I was blacking out and coming in and out. And I woke up at midnight and I was able to take my first drink of water without throwing up. And I was just a drop, but it was enough to just start to open my throat up again. And so throughout that night I had little sips and then the next morning, Jose said, listen, you're gonna stay with me and my wife, and you're gonna stay here as long as it takes for us to get you back to life and get color back in you. And my wife's gonna cook you everything I ask her to cook you, and we're just gonna do what it takes to get you life back. And so, you know, the very beginning, it was water, then it was tea, and then it was fruit juice, and then it was solid fruit, and then it was a little bit of bread. And then over the next, over those three days, they just nursed me back to life 
And the third day I woke up and I had color back in me for the first time. And Jose woke me up, he looked at me and he said, you're gonna go back to Havana today. We already have a car set up for you. They're gonna take you to Havana today. And you're gonna get on the first flight you can back to America. And you're gonna go immediately back to a hospital to save your life. And spoiler alert, I survived. Here we are, all because of the kindness of strangers. So thank you guys. You really had me sold on Cuba in the first half of that story with the affordable housing. And then I really backed out at the death part of the... No, thank you. Storyteller Adam Schluter from the June 17th Pivot performance. Earlier, we heard from Katie Blackburn. Tomorrow night, we will hear from Josh Armstrong and Jennifer Mesa, and then another round of stories on Wednesday night from Pivot Spokane, the DJ Darian Mack, and the host Jennifer Watson. <laughs>